And I hope you've been uh, enjoying the chance to see the text again in a new and better way. That's the intent anyway. We'll do more of that here today. We're in, uh, in the near, near the end of 27, moving a step ahead in the story of Jesus' death on the cross. That's where we are right now. He has been condemned by Pilate in the Antonian fortress. And in short order, he's going to be nailed to a wooden cross. And Matthew's account will move extremely quickly through the events of this next stage. In fact, he'll often give just a single verse to a significant uh, moment in the story of Jesus' death. While the other gospel writers will fill in those gaps, Matthew is very uh, conservative, very parsimonious. And therefore, there will be times when we'll venture outside the gospel of Matthew to fill in some of those details. But I really want to remain true to what we're studying here. You know, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, so I want to stay largely with the text, and as we go through it, I want to remind you of the three areas I said we're going to focus on in this part of our study. First, we want to understand, as best we can, what Jesus actually experienced as he goes through this process. And then secondly, I want to help you understand the purpose in it, the, the meaning of these events, and not just the ultimate one of death on the cross, but in the details too. Why are the things happening the way they're happening? And then finally, we're going to pay close attention to timeline, uh, place, and, 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 and names, and so on, details that get the story accurate, because there are a lot of myths, a lot of misconceptions associated with this story, and I want to expose those as we go along. So we want to understand what happened, why it happened, and what didn't happen as far as the myths go. Today we pick up in verse 32. And immediately as we open today, you're going to notice how much uh, what I just said earlier is true, how much Matthew packs into a single verse. For actually today we're going to uh, really uh, keep to the name of the church. We're going to go verse by verse because that's how you have to study it at this point. So starting in verse 32, it says, As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. So that's our first verse for the morning. Matthew moves directly from Pilate's condemnation of Jesus in the Antonian fortress to Jesus with his cross headed to his execution site, which was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Now this is the only verse that Matthew devotes to the entire journey of Jesus from Pilate to when he's hanging on the cross. This is it. And because he jumps so quickly, I'm going to take a few, few more minutes here. We're going to slow down and look at this a little more carefully. And first, I want to get you oriented to what's happening physically. That is, in the terms of the land, the, the, the movement, and so on. I'm going to put a couple slides up here for you. We're going to start with the outline of the current city. Now, this map's a little small. You'll get a bigger one in a minute. But this is the, the outline you're seeing there in yellow is the border wall of the city in Jesus' day. And the city that is there now, we call it the old city of Jerusalem, because around it is the modern city of Jerusalem, which is quite large. But in the old city of Jerusalem today, there's a version of this. But to, in Jesus' day, this is the boundary. It's a very small area. Uh, let me kind of orient you to a few of the, of the details. The fortress, the Antonian fortress is inside these walls. Uh, at the northern end. In fact, let me just take you through a couple of notable places here. So in the southern end on the southeast, southwest side is where you found, found the upper city. This is where Jesus may have conducted the Last Supper. This is where uh, the high priest's house would have been. This is a rich district of the city. And uh, that's where Jesus spent part of the night. Uh, over here is the temple, Temple Mount. That's where the Sanhedrin Council would have met. Uh, Jesus was teaching there in the days leading up to his death. Just north of it, against the wall of it, inside the city walls, is the Antonian 
fortress. So that's where Pilate is. That's where Jesus has spent the last few hours in the early morning of Thursday, the, the Passover day. And he has now been condemned there. And where he is going next for his execution is outside the city walls, west, northwest of the city, in a place that is known as either Calvary or Golgotha. Now, the historical path that Jesus took to get there from the Antonian fortress, it doesn't exist anymore because the city itself has been destroyed and rebuilt multiple times since 2,000 years ago when Jesus was there. So today, if you visit in Jerusalem, you'll know there is a memorial walk that signifies or marks Jesus' travels. We call it the Via Della Rosa, which is in Latin, way of suffering. It roughly retraces Jesus' path, except if you go walk the Via Della Rosa today, you'll notice that it begins and ends inside the city walls today. And naturally, that confuses some people because they know from their Bible that Jesus was you know, dying outside the city walls. And so they wonder, how is it that the current path lies entirely inside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem? And the reason is because those are not the original walls of Jesus' day. So let me add another couple of lines now to this map. The yellow, as I said, is the walls of Jesus' day. Now, about a decade and a half, about 15 years or so after Jesus died, King Agrippa decided to expand the walls of the city because of the growth of the city. More people were moving in. They couldn't put everybody in the walls, so they expanded the walls. They went up north, and so he added the blue section. So the blue section got added to the city as Jesus would have seen it. Now, you notice as soon as he did that, he put the crucifixion site inside the city now. It became part of the the walled-in city. Now, that was about AD 45, AD 50, And then in uh, AD 70, those walls all came down because the Romans conquered the Jewish revolt and they took all the walls down to rubble. And those walls, and there were no walls there for quite some period of time. And then in the 1500s, in the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire conquered this region and they rebuilt the walls. And the Ottoman walls are the ones you see today. And those walls are now in orange. Now, you can see in the case of the Ottoman walls, they're not as big as Agrippa's walls, but they're bigger than what was true in Jesus' day. But most importantly, they still encompass the crucifixion site. So today, when you go to the old city of Jerusalem, and if you walk the Via Dolorosa, when you find yourself entirely inside the walls for the entirety of the walk, it's because of the way the new walls cover the city. And Jesus' death site, his, his, uh, the location of his crucifixion, is now marked inside those city walls by a magnificent church that was built by Constantine in the fourth century. So the actual distance that Jesus would have traveled from the Antonian fortress to that crucifixion site, going back to the days of of Jesus when the wall was the way it was. Let's zoom back in on that. So there you go again. Those are the walls of Jesus' day. And here's the walk he would have performed. It was roughly 500 meters from beginning to end, about a quarter mile, And given a normal person's walk, that's about a 15-minute walk at worst. Not very long. But given Jesus' debilitated state following beatings and scourging and sleepless night and all the rest, this is an ordeal. This is a real challenge. And adding to the difficulty that he faced that day, the Romans forced the condemned prisoners to carry their own cross, or at least a part of it, 
to the crucifixion site. They, the Romans used any one of about four different styles of crosses historically, so we can't be sure which one was used in Jesus' time. But there are a few details in the story. Later on, we'll see one of these details. But these later details start to suggest one of the four styles, and particularly the one that we've come to know so commonly, the T-shaped cross that we all now think of when we think of Jesus on the cross. That was likely the one that he was using. And if that was the case, then the prisoner would have only carried the horizontal beam, not the full cross, just the horizontal beam. And here again, this is one of those uh, moments uh, where, where we can dispel the myth. The movies, of course, and recreations today, you always see people carrying a full cross. That never happened, okay? That's not how Jesus would have done it. There's no kind of Roman cross that would involve him carrying the full T. At worst, he carried one beam, the horizontal beam, tied to his arm so he wouldn't drop it. That was the way they took it uh, to the crucifixion site. Now, that beam was not especially large, not especially heavy. We're not talking about a telephone pole or something. Maybe a four-by-four is about the size you ought to imagine. Strong enough to support a man's weight, but no more, and therefore light enough to be carried. But Jesus was in no condition to carry anything, much less a four-by-four on his back. And you see evidence of that in the verse I read here, verse 32. In verse 32, we're told that as soon as Jesus picks up his cross and he begins to walk out of the Antonian fortress, he falls. Uh, Right away, you notice at the beginning of verse 32, as he was leaving... So right away, the Roman guards realize Jesus cannot make it to the crucifixion site holding this wood. So they conscript a nearby passerby, a man that Matthew says is called Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is a place in northern Africa. So this would have been a Jewish man living in the diaspora who would have come to Jerusalem specifically for the Passover, which was a requirement for men under Jewish law. So this would have been an annual pilgrimage for him. And like the rest of the crowd in the city that day, he was there to witness the national Passover lamb being killed at the temple at 9 a.m. that morning. That was why he was there, probably. And he just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe we should say the right place at the right time. And he's required by the guards to follow Jesus for the entire walk to the crucifixion site, carrying Jesus's wooden beam. Now, here's another opportunity for us to correct a common misconception about how this goes. Jesus did not carry his own cross. Not even for more than a brief moment. He's coming out of the Antonian fortress and he falls. And from that point, he never touched the cross again. It was someone else's to carry the whole distance. He didn't fall three times, as Catholics say. He didn't carry it most of the way. He didn't carry it at all. He couldn't. The guy could barely stand. He could barely walk. And nor did he need to. There's nothing wrong with this. I don't want anybody to think, oh my gosh, you're ruining my gospel. No, there's this. (laughs) Jesus got there. The cross got there, he was nailed to it. I mean, the point is, he was so debilitated by what had already taken place, he could not carry it. And Simon, being forced to carry Jesus' cross, this was much more than an inconvenience for this man. He is now a participant in the horrors of crucifixion. Uh, He isn't going to be nailed to the cross, obviously, but he still shared in the abuse that Jesus endured on the way there because an accused condemned man who was walking to his execution carrying the cross, he had to travel through densely packed, narrow city streets. Uh, If you've been to Jerusalem today, the old city today, though it's a different city, it's roughly the same dimension, it has about the same layout, and if you've been there, especially if it's a crowded time, I mean, who knows, 
today, it's probably empty, but the point is back when people could travel and enjoy normal life, that city would be packed all year long with tourists. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You, it's like Riverwalk here in July, you know, where you're afraid of getting pushed off into the water. The same thing there, only it's just densely packed little cobblestone streets with just tons of people in there. That's how it was at Passover. We know from history that somewhere upwards of two million Jews would flood this tiny little area to be a participant in Passover every year. It was, it was jam-packed with people. And in the midst of that, you have someone being pushed through that crowd toward their death. And we know that the tendency, the, the tradition was that the people who would be there during a moment like this would jeer at the prisoner and hurl insults and abuse and spit on the man and, and throw rocks and other objects at him and, and even throw a punch at him if they could when he walked by. I mean, it was just nonstop abuse through this gauntlet of people all the way to the cross. And with the crowds pressing in on Jesus doing this in that tight, chaotic kind of space, Anyone who is near Jesus was going to find themselves in the crossfire, right? The abuse was not intended for Simon, obviously, but when those misdirected rocks or spit or or misplaced punches landed on him, they still stung. He still felt it. And the closer that Simon walked with Jesus, the more of that abuse came his way. Now, at the same time, His role gained him a a benefit of sorts, a front row seat where he could witness Jesus' personal suffering. Now, Matthew doesn't record any of the details of the journey beyond what we just read, but the other gospel writers give us a little more. And in notable case, one specific moment, there's a moment in John and in Luke's gospel where they're telling us that there's these women who are following along wailing and lamenting for Jesus' circumstances. And we know from history that these women were not actually wailing for Jesus out of any true concern for him. In fact, they probably didn't even know who he was. They're professional mourners. Uh, Because in Jewish culture, it was considered dishonorable for someone to go to their death without anyone mourning. And the more someone mourned for you, the more that was honoring to you. And of course, you know, when someone's condemned to die and they're being executed, they're typically not the kind of person with a lot of friends and a large following, right? These aren't people that have their family in town. So they're often alone through that experience. And so it became uh, this, it gave rise to this, this role of professional mourner. These women who would just follow along and wail and wail hypocritically. I mean, they're not truly upset, but it was a way of honoring this person, and then their hope was that the family members might compensate them. It's sort of like the guy, the the lady, who when you stop at a streetlight, washes your windows on your car without asking, and they're doing it because they're hoping you might be grateful enough to pay them a little bit for it. It's the same idea. And Jesus sees these women mourning for him. He hears it, and he knows why they're doing it, and he knows they're not going to get paid. So he offers them compensation of sorts in another form, in the form of advice. And in Luke 23, 27, we hear this. Following Jesus was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He's offering them a prophecy concerning what was coming for the city of Jerusalem and those who lived in it. It's a judgment from God. He says, you know, save your crying for your own kids because there's a day coming when that's gonna be your experience. It's a judgment God brought to Israel, to the people of Israel, to Jerusalem specifically, because they rejected their Messiah. 
And it came in AD 70, as promised by the Romans. In fact, the stories we have from Josephus of that event are horrific. There was a moment, uh, they were sieged for a couple years by the Romans, so they couldn't get food in. You know, you're in a captive walled city with no way to get food in. It, you know, after a while, all the animals are gone, all the grain's gone, then they start eating the rats and the cats and the dogs, those are gone. And there, in the stories that are told, there was a point where they would eat, women would eat their afterbirth or even the children. And it's horrible to think about, right? But it shows the desperation that that city in, endured toward its very end. And then the Romans get through the wall, they kill everybody mostly, from what we are told. That's the judgment that was coming. And Jesus says to them, in a compassionate way, a warning, obviously, helping them know that there was something coming, he warns them, go to the mountains. And he's giving them some advice that's helpful of concern for them. Imagine that. He is, he is shredded, dying, and about to be nailed to a cross, and his concern is ultimately for them. And so here's Simon, following closely behind Jesus, and he's experiencing moments like this with Jesus because he's with Jesus, because he's in that role. And I suspect there might have been other things that aren't recorded in the Gospels, other moments of comment, other moments of Jesus doing something. At the very least, he witnessed this man handling unbearable circumstances in a very unexpected way. And in particular, he notices what Jesus does not do. And by that I mean this. Normally a convicted, condemned criminal headed to the cross, uh, being abused in this way by the crowd constantly, hit by things, spit on, and so on. He, this man is typically in no mood to be kind to anyone for any reason. In fact, the stories are that they often would respond to those insults by screaming obscenities back at the crowd. I mean, who could blame them, really? They know where they're going. They know what's about to happen. They're in pain, and they just hate everything at that point, and everyone. And Jesus is not doing this. Jesus is reacting so differently. He's showing concern for women who are pretending to mourn for him. This is, this is bizarre. It must have puzzled Simon to no end. And he's not uttering any insults. He's not saying hardly anything at all. He's not crying. He's not cursing. He's accepting the abuse willingly. And as we studied a few weeks back, you know, that kind of willing acceptance, it just would have made an impression on Simon. So here's the thing. Here's the thing you have to understand about Simon's situation. If Simon walks closely with Jesus, then he will see and he will hear remarkable things. But if he stays close to Jesus, he's also going to endure more abuse, right? So he could have, he could have kind of dropped back a little bit. He could have faded away a little bit, kind of got himself out of the line of fire, but it, then he would have missed things. He wouldn't have heard things. He wouldn't have seen things. I wonder which of those two alternatives mattered most to him. I wonder what he chose. I think the Lord arranged for Simon to walk with Jesus in this way so that we would have this really perfect picture or example of how our walk with Jesus, metaphorically speaking, will always include blessing and sacrifice. That is, the closer you walk with Jesus, the more you're going to suffer as Jesus did, because Jesus said they hated him first, therefore they will hate us too. Uh, in John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, well, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So it's such a beautiful comparison, right? The world loves its own. And here's the thing. It's a spiritual issue we're talking here about. We're not talking about personal preferences. We're talking about something that's so deeply seated in the human nature that they can't, 
uh, even name it, but they can certainly feel it. And the world knows its own. And in that sense, it approves what approves it. But the world, by the same token, hates God because they know instinctively that God convicts the world for its ungodliness, even if they don't want to talk about it, even if they don't like to say it or agree with it, even if they try to put it out of their minds, instinctively, there is a sense of conviction from the world when it's in the presence of God or anyone who would represent him in an honest way. And therefore, as an ambassador of Christ, as the Bible calls us, when we are like him in any respect, then we have become an enemy of the world. We are by nature an enemy of the world, but more than that, the closer you walk with Jesus, the more you look like him, the more you sound like him, the more the world will hate you. It's inevitable. It's instinctive. And how that comes out, well, kind of depends. Depends on your situation. Depends on your person, your, your, the, the people you're with. I'm not saying everyone's going to throw a rock at you, certainly. I hope not. But they may find other ways, creative ways, to show you that you're not one of them and they're not one of you. In that sense, you're like Simon. You're walking closely with Jesus. You're carrying your cross, which is what Jesus told us all to do in that sense. And as you walk with him in your life, you're going to be subject to hatred and abuse. But you've got to remember, that hatred and abuse is not directed at you. I mean, spiritually speaking, it's directed at Jesus. It's directed at God. They're not hating you per se. They're hating God in you, and you are collateral damage. And like Simon, you have a choice. You want to lessen that abuse? Well, yeah, sure. Just fade back in your walk. Blend in with the crowd. Don't look so much like him. Don't sound so much like him. Don't be so close to him. You're not less saved. (laughs) This isn't a question of who you are. Your identity isn't changing. The question is, who do you want to be identified with? But if you do that, or when you do that, you will lose the experience of walking with Christ, which means things like, not seeing him at work in your life in different ways that he might have been, not hearing from his word or him in prayer in other ways. Things that would have been a part of your life are not there because you're too far. You're walking somewhere else. Christians cannot be friends with Jesus and be friends with the world, the Bible says. Jesus, uh, James says in James 4.4, 4, to the church there, he said, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the dilemma. That was the dilemma Simon faced. I think this man was enlisted by God and made a part of the story of Jesus' death specifically to remind Christ's followers you have to be willing to be identified with Jesus. And that's our calling. You know, I find it interesting this man's name is Simon. Who else do we remember who's named Simon or was originally, right? The chief apostle, Peter, who was originally Simon before Jesus gave him his new name. So on this day, you have one Simon who is present following Jesus to the cross and another Simon, the rock, who is notably absent, AWOL. I wonder if this would have happened. I think it's reasonable. It's an assumption, but I think it's reasonable. Had Peter been present with Jesus that day and following him closely as he was earlier that night, might not he have been the one that they enlisted to carry the cross? Wouldn't the Romans have just picked his associate? You're here with him. You, you carry it for him. Wouldn't that have been the Simon that followed Jesus, maybe? After all, that was the Simon that Jesus said would be responsible for leading the early church. He would set the example for everyone. Later, he'll tell them, feed my sheep. This is the man that God wanted to shepherd at the very earliest days of the church. He's the rock upon which Jesus started building his church. And yet, where was Simon Peter now? He's hiding. You remember why he's hiding, right? He's trying to avoid the abuse. 
He's trying to stay far enough away that the rocks and the spit and whatever else might come isn't falling on him. And so another Simon took his place. And I find that to be a very interesting footnote because it reminded me, if you won't walk with Jesus, if we won't serve Jesus, you know what? You'll find someone else. Because see, the thing you have to remember is when, when you don't walk with Jesus, he's not losing out on that. It's not like he is suffering because you didn't walk with him. He gets everything done. Do you realize that you do nothing for God and the same number of people show up in heaven, the same number of dollars are given to the church, the same number of hours are given in volunteer, the same number of everything. There is nothing God needs you for. If he did, he wouldn't be God, right? He is offering us an opportunity to do something with him. So if we don't walk with Jesus, we lose out. He doesn't lose out. He finds another Simon. But you miss marvelous, amazing, and sometimes challenging things that you can experience because you're near him when he's doing work, when he's moving. And I realize I'm pushing this analogy maybe further than you'd like. I don't know, but I'm telling you, I know it from my own experience. I worked for uh, uh, almost a decade as an active duty military officer, and then I moved into working in the civilian world in a various positions in biotech and then in you know, financial services, corporate America, and so on and so forth. I got this nice, diverse background of things I was doing, and it came to be apparent to me that my walk with Christ required that that stuff move out of the way so that new things could take their place with whatever consequences came from that, whatever that needed to be. And in the moments that you face like that in your life, you make choices for what your next phase of life is going to look like. And in my case, looking back, I wouldn't trade this for the world. I have the best job in the world. I mean, I get paid to do this. This is amazing. But more than that, I have changed. I'm a different guy. I think differently. I live differently. I, I have different experiences. I have different friends. I know, I've gone all over the world teaching. I've done and seen and been a part of things I never would have had a chance to be a part of. Why? Because I had something God needed? No. I'm just a mouth. Oh, I'm just a person. I mean, you know, he can speak through, my wife reminds me, if he can speak through a donkey, <laughs> you're really not all that, are you? So, it's, it's, it's just that I, I followed, I just walked, I just went. And I hope I'm staying close. I mean, that's the intent. You don't know what you're missing when you drift back and fade into the crowd and become part of the world out of whatever reasons you have and let Jesus walk on ahead of you, that you just don't realize what you're missing. And, and here's one final thought, and then we're moving on. When Simon followed Jesus, yeah, he suffered along the way, but you know what he didn't suffer? He didn't suffer death. When they got to the point where Jesus was to be nailed to that cross, Simon was set free. He was allowed to go. Jesus stayed behind. Jesus got nailed to the cross. And that reminds you that your walking with Jesus doesn't require that you make that sacrifice. That one's been made once and for all. There is no need to repeat that sacrifice. Christ is not asking you to walk with him because you have something to make up for, something to pay back something you have to complete in order to be approved by God. No, that's by faith alone. Simon was set free when Christ reached the cross, the point of his execution. So will you be when you accept that in your place. He's just asking you to walk on the way. Moving on. Jesus makes his way to the execution site, Simon following, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and I know that's awkward, but we're stopping there, halfway through a sentence, but this is another of those single verses with a bit to go on. Let's just look at this for a second. This gets us back to talking a little bit about um, what happens at the crucifixion. Now, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the scourging. 
Uh, I want to give you a bit of an understanding of what it was like for Jesus at this moment in the point of going to the cross. Clearly, I don't want to belabor this. We're just going to know enough to understand his suffering. And as Jesus reaches this place, now go back to the map for a minute, you'll notice the execution site uh, is relatively close to the wall. And in fact, uh, it was probably only a few yards. You probably just saw it as soon as he got out the gate, and there it is. Uh, the name for this place in Aramaic is Golgotha. Matthew translates it for us here, place of a skull. It refers to the fact that Romans executed a lot of people here. So there was a lot of skulls around. There was a lot of dead people in this particular place. And prisoners, when they carried their, their horizontal beam to this point, then the rest of the crucifixion would kick in as they reached the, the actual place of their death. And in typical Roman fashion, this happened efficiently and quickly and brutally. So the first thing they did is they just pushed the guy to the ground, knocked him over. He had been carrying his beam. Now, Jesus wasn't, but they laid him on the beam, and his arms are immediately nailed to the outstretched, you know, on the beam itself. Uh, they're nailed through the wrists. Now, in John's gospel, there's a moment after the crucifixion and resurrection when he appears to Thomas, and he talks about them inspecting the wounds. He says, look at my hands, he says, but in Greek... The word for hand meant everything from the wrist up. So it's not definitive in that respect. You can't say he said hand, that means palm. No, it could be anywhere on the hand. And we know, anatomically speaking, you cannot hold somebody's weight through the, the palm. It would rip through if they even tried to support their weight. It had to be through the wrists where there's a structure to hold the body up. So he would have been nailed through there. As the nails penetrate the wrist, they would sever ligaments and nerves which would cause tremendous shooting pain as the nerves are hit and involuntary contractions of the fingers in the hands. Then, now that the, the prisoner's nailed there, now the beam is lifted up into place on the vertical beam, which is usually already in place in the ground, kind of permanently so. And as the prisoner is lifted by his arms, outstretched, nailed to this horizontal beam, the weight of the body hanging from that position would have put tremendous stress on the shoulders such that one or both would have been dislocated instantly as the body is raised up. Now, when I was in college, I, I did a little wrestling at one point, and uh, I had one of my shoulders dislocated in the process of that. And I'll tell you, even to this day, I don't think I've ever had as much pain as that injury for the moment that that, it's just unbelievable pain to have your shoulder pushed out of joint. And that intense pain by itself is bad enough. Now you got yourself nailed and hanging from nails. The whole thing just becomes uh, one intense experience of pain. Once that beam is up and, and attached... Then the man's feet are nailed to the vertical beam, one on top of another through the back of the heel, and they would position the legs up so that the knees are very bent. And this was another Roman innovation to extend the suffering because while hanging in that position from your arms, you can't, your, your diaphragm cannot open the cavity of the chest enough to pull in air because you're extended. So you have to push up with your feet to get enough relaxing of your arms to let the cavity open up to get a breath, and then you'd fall back down. And so this back and forth was how men would breathe in that position, which just made the whole thing worse, because every time you pull or push on your legs or your arms, everything was all that much more painful. Leon Morris describes it this way. He says, to breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity opening and functioning. Terrible muscle spasms racked the entire body. But since... Collapse meant asphyxiation. The strain went on and on, and that's why the seducula, which is the term for that piece of wood they would put behind the prisoner, usually near his rear end so he could kind of sit or perch on it a little bit, they put that on there to prolong agony, he says. 
it partially supported the body's weight, which encouraged the victim to fight on. So according to Mark, Jesus is put in this position with all that I just described on the cross at the third Roman hour, which on our clock is about 9 a.m., exactly 9 a.m. This is the first of three divisions of time that we're going to look at through the course of this, the rest of this day. Uh, we're not going to get into more of it today. Next week we will. But the divisions are 9 to noon, noon to 3, and 3 to 6. Within each of these, specific things are happening that are distinct and important, and we'll look at it in that way, one at a time. From 9 a.m. till noon, that's Jesus starting his hanging on the cross. And in this period of time, he suffers what has often been described the wrath of men or the, the, the sin of mankind. By that we mean this, that sinful men put Jesus on the cross. Sinful people, sinful men are tormenting him as he hangs. He is experiencing the consequences of sin, not his own, but of ours collectively, if you will. So you could say it this way. Spiritually speaking, each of us put Jesus on the cross that day. Now you've heard that, and I know you understand it from a spiritual point of view. My sin is why he had to hang on the cross. Yes, that's true. That's not exactly what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you think that had you lived in that day, had you been a first century Jew living in Jerusalem on this day, and been there on this day, if you're thinking, I never would have done that to him, you're fooling yourself. There is nothing fundamentally different between you and the people who were there on that day. They mocked and they tormented Jesus, and you would have too. They are sinners, you are sinners. They hate God, you hate God, apart from the grace of God. That's the difference. There's no difference between you and them. There's difference between them and God in you. And of course, having God in you, having come to faith, having come to an understanding of who Jesus is, no, you would not have approved. But on the other hand, wouldn't you have known the need for it? Right? I mean, don't you understand? It's a dilemma, isn't it? I assure you, all of us would have been spitting on Jesus. All of us would have been hitting Jesus. All of us would have been hating Jesus until we knew the truth about who he was. And he will hang now in this three-hour period and all the way to the end of the, the day until he dies. Typically, the death of a crucified person was of either asphyxiation or shock or exposure or some version of that. They'd weaken over time. And as they did weaken, they couldn't lift themselves up anymore. And at some point, you just can't get a breath. And that's a process that could take hours or days even. Here again, the Romans wanted to prolong that agony, so they were perfectly willing to give the prisoner water to drink, or vinegar usually. Uh, vinegar is the ancient form of Gatorade. Kind of electrolytes and you know, people would drink it. So they would allow the prisoner to get all the drink he wanted. Why? Because they didn't want him to die of dehydration. That was actually a quicker way to die. They wanted him to keep drinking, keep drinking. Uh, near the end of the time Jesus is on the cross, you may know there's a point in which he says, I am thirsty. And in response to that, they offer him vinegar and he drinks it. But then he dies soon after that. But there was just one concession that the Romans made to mercy. They offered, at the very outset of the crucifixion, as it got started, they would offer the prisoner a chance to drink a potion that would help with the pain. That's the next verse. Verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. It's the combination of vinegar with gall. Gall is what your body produces naturally. Um, gall mixed with that vinegar has a slight anesthetic effect, meaning it would cut the pain a little bit to some extent. But you notice he refuses to drink this when he realizes what's it. He didn't know what he was getting at first, and he tasted it, and he realized, oh, this is that antiseptic you give to prisoners. I don't want this. Why do you do that? 
because he's not supposed to avoid the pain. Quite the contrary. The whole point of this experience, as we learned earlier, was he is there to experience suffering, full force, for our sake. He's there to suffer for our sake. If he refuses, to, if he takes this, he's not suffering as much. He's refusing to take anything that would decrease his suffering. And then lastly, Jesus hangs, Matthew tells us, as guards below him begin profiting from him that day. That's in verses 35 through 36, last verses for the day. He says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Now, Roman soldiers were paid in part by either spoil from war or spoil from prisoners that they guarded. And here you're seeing them profit from Jesus. Now, here's a new misconception that you can dispel. Jesus had no clothes on. Now, we often see him depicted with something on, but that's because of our sensibilities, right? No one wants to see a fully naked Jesus on the cross hanging in their church, right? Not that we should have one necessarily anyway. But that's not how it went. I mean, you think the Romans were worried about modesty at this point? The whole point was to shame the person. They hung completely naked on the cross. And that means all of Jesus' clothes are at his feet. And the prisoners... Uh, having been stripped all their clothes and dying, they don't need them, they go to someone. And you might think that's a trivial need. No one would care about discarded clothes. We live in a different age of wealth than this age. Clothes were a valuable commodity. Some people's entire possessions consisted of little more than their clothing. So there were multiple guards assigned that day to guard the prisoners. They want to split up what's there. Everybody gets something. Now, typically what people in that day wore started with an inner tunic, then an outer tunic, and then a headgear, maybe, and then sandals, and, and then usually a heavier outer robe, five pieces altogether usually. All of those things had different value, and you sort of divide them up based on value so that everybody got something. Uh, in the case of that outer coat, it was the most valuable piece by far. So rather than one guy get a, a windfall, they would tear it into pieces and everybody gets a part of it. The fabric alone still had value and it could be used in several ways and so they didn't mind tearing it up to get that piece rather than get nothing. But in John's gospel, we're told, they do not tear Jesus' coat and the reason is because he wore a seamless tunic, John says. And what he's referring to here is a style of coat of the day that was much more valuable. Uh, it was a high class piece of clothing. It was what only upper class Jews wore. Without the seam, that showed it of being a higher quality construction. And these guys recognize, oh, this is a special coat. This is a really nice one. We don't want to ruin this one. We'll throw lots. Somebody here is going to win this one. And they gamble for that one piece of clothing. Now, why is this in the gospel? You know, you, you look at something like this, you remember it maybe, you've read it before, and you just breeze right past it. But if you think about it for a minute, why did that have to make it into the gospel account? Why do we need to know that? Well, the reason is for the same that many other little details are in the gospel account because they are all fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. For example, I want you to listen to Psalm 22. I'll put it on the screen for you so you can look at it with us. Psalm 22, verse 11 is where we're gonna start. This is written by David, and it's speaking as if Jesus were the one talking about himself. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. 
They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here's David describing what is obviously the experience of Jesus on the cross, but the thing to remember is David wrote this centuries before crucifixion had been invented. It was invented by the Persians, as far as we can tell. came centuries later. No one had thought about nailing people to wood. This is an entirely foreign concept. And yet here he is writing about the experience, very clearly so, which tells us God gave David this preview, a prophecy about Jesus' ministry. And just look at it briefly here with me. Verse 11, he says, Jesus said, there's none to help me. Now, of course, we know Jesus had no allies there. I mean, he had a few women, he had John, but he didn't have anybody who could do anything. Nobody could help him. He's alone in that respect. Verse 12, many bulls of Bashan surround him. That's a reference to the Roman soldiers and also to the crowd to an extent. The Bashan bull was often a picture in scripture of a powerful warrior or enemy, particularly enemies, and therefore it's an apt description of Rome, the most powerful enemy of the day. And you notice he says they open their mouths at Jesus roaring at him like lions. That's referring to the insults and the jeers and and what he heard from the crowd as he walked through the crowd. He felt, he said, as if his life was being poured out of his body as he was scourged and beaten and then nailed to the cross. Verse 14, his bones are out of joint. That's a reference to his shoulders going out of joint when he gets lifted up on the cross. It says here that his heart is melting like wax. It's a sense of his heart weakening, his life going out of him as he dies slowly by loss of blood and stress. His sap, his strength is sapped. His mouth is dry. His tongue sticks to his mouth. That's the kind of experience anyone had in that moment. Perfect description of crucifixion. Then he says dogs surround him. One, one question, you'll all know, a lot of you all know the answer. What is the Gentile meaning of dog? I'm sorry, what is the Jewish meaning of dog? I just gave you the answer. I did that for the rest of you who didn't know. I'm trying to be helpful. Yeah, Jews call Gentiles dogs. Well, what are surrounding Jesus when he's on the cross? The Gentile Roman soldiers, the dogs. And he calls them also a band of evildoers. They're the ones who nailed him to the cross. Notice verse 16, the same ones who are around him are the ones who nailed his hands and feet, the Roman soldiers. And it's those same ones that he says in verse 17 and 18 that ultimately cast lots for his clothing. I mean, there's the detail. Why is it there? Why is all of this there? Because that's how God reveals himself. It's like he likes to lay out the puzzle so then he can reveal it to us in a moment so that when we see it, the fact that it was always there and in advance, and in detail, nullifies the doubt that some might bring to that answer and use it to explain away what they're hearing or learning. Oh, it can't be, it can't be, Jesus can't be. But how do you explain this centuries before it ever existed? It's gotta be God. And is it just chance? Is it just coincidence that Jesus' experience perfectly matches what God said centuries earlier? Look, if you believe that, it takes more faith for me to believe that is coincidence than to believe that it's what God did, right? He loves to work this way. And if you think back once more to Simon the Cyrene, God used moments like this, I think, for Simon. In Mark's gospel, when he tells us about Simon, he also mentions in passing that he was the father of a man named Rufus. Now, it's odd in a way that Mark, in the middle of this account, would suddenly do that little parenthetical comment, oh, by the way, Simon is the father of Rufus. It would suggest that Mark knew that his Roman readers, because he wrote to the Romans, that he knew his Roman readers would recognize the name. And he wanted the reader to understand, the Rufus you know is the son of this man, Simon, who had to follow Jesus, and then later in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book we call Romans, in chapter 16, 
Paul mentions that there's a Rufus in Rome, and he says, greet Rufus. It would seem as though what Simon experienced on that walk with Jesus directly led to his appreciation that Jesus was the Messiah and that, that he taught his kids. And his kids then later became part of the church in Rome. I wonder if it was the things that he saw and he heard that day that reminded him perhaps of Psalm 22 or of Isaiah 53, of those passages that are so clearly a description of this moment. Somehow he came to realize this isn't just an ordinary guy dying. I didn't just get stuck behind some Yahoo that's going to the, to the, to the cross. I'm behind the promised one of Israel. And this is what they've been talking about all that time in the scriptures. Friends, that's why details matter. If you think I kind of geek out too much on some of this stuff, friends, this is why I think it matters. We study this kind of stuff at this level of detail because that's how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And not just in the simple sense that he died on a cross to save you from your sin, whosoever believes, you know, etc. That's true too, of course, God can use everything. But for many people, it comes because they, they see the dots connected in little details that explain to them God at work. And when you see it that way, I'll tell you, it's powerful. You can't walk away from it. You can't talk it out of your head. You can't say it's just coincidence. You either have to believe it or you have to work hard to deny it. That's why details matter. And for those of us who are following Jesus already and know him already, I think these details are helpful because they help build our confidence and our trust in the word of God. And I hope that's what you're learning as we go through this together, at least in part. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you for your word and for its trustworthiness and for the details that you've given so that we would know it to be true, Father. Thank you for that. And thank you, Father, for revealing the meaning of it to us as we devote ourselves to it. And thank you for men like Simon, Father, we're so much like him, Father, as I reflect on how you have worked in my life and in the lives of others, Father. Simon didn't ask to be in that position. He didn't apply to, to walk behind Jesus. He didn't, he didn't choose to be in that moment, Father. You put him there. You inscripted, conscripted him to do that. And next thing you know, Father, he's following the Messiah, not only literally but in his heart. And I thank you, Father, that you can do that with anyone at any time. We can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you make it the right place at the right time. And I ask, Father, that for anyone here who is hearing for the first time the story of Jesus in a way that shows them the truth of it, I pray, Father, you'll move their heart today. Move them to know that Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah, who died for them, and that if they accept his death on the cross in their own place, they may receive eternal life. And, Father, for all of us who know this to be true now already, my call, my heart, my, my request, Father, is that you'd help us to walk with Jesus in a visible way, without fear, without worry, knowing that things will come, but, Father, knowing it's in your plan, and ultimately, Father, knowing that glory awaits. And I thank you for the privilege that it is to follow a Lord who did so much for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.